Well, good morning, Bethel. I think the purpose of praise and worship is to prepare your heart to receive the word. So if your heart's not prepared this morning, I don't know what will prepare it. And Brother Matt's made my job easy because my heart's prepared to give it, and I hope you're prepared to receive it. Before I get started this morning, I do want to do something quickly. Uh, You know, the Bible says the day is coming, and I'm looking forward to that day when we will beat our swords into plowshares and we'll study war no more. But until that time, we have men and women who are willing to put on a uniform and go over to places maybe we're not willing to go and fight for our freedom. And so just for a moment before I get started this morning, I'm going to ask any veterans that serve in the United States Armed Forces if you'll stand this morning just so we can recognize you and your service. Any veteran that served, please stand. Outstanding. Let's give, let's give these men a hand. Lastly, if you're here and you're a parent of someone who is serving, would you please stand? If you have a parent or or a wife or a husband or someone that's serving, please stand. These folks right here, they go through it as well. So thank you for for what your loved ones are willing to do. Let's give them a hand. Let me pray. Father, I thank you, God, for the opportunity, God, to stand here. God, the only way I can stand here and handle your holy word is because a veil was torn. Because you died on a cross, God, and you made a way for me, a man, simple man, to come into your presence and to handle your most holy word. So I pray, God, that hearts will be prepared for this. God, it won't be my words, they'll be yours. God, and they'll prick the hearts of the hearers for those who may need to hear it. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last, at the end of last year, the beginning of this year, Tammy and I had the privilege of leading a small group study uh, in our home. I see some of, those, some of you nodding your head. There was many in here that was able to take uh, part of it uh, with us. And the small group study was centered around the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is, without a doubt, the most, probably the most mysterious, but the most, one of the most well-known books of the Bible. I think if you were to go out and poll even non-believers and even nominal Christians who don't spend much time in God's Word, and if you don't, I hope you will start, and ask them to name some books in the Bible, I'm surely that Revelation would be one of those books. There's been a lot of novels written about it. The Tim LaHaye Left Behind series years ago burst the book of Revelation like never before out on, out on the scene. And as I begin to prepare for this small group study, I begin to look around at what material was out there, what would be the best study guide for a small group. And I looked at several different things, and I ended up with a study guide and a book by Greg Laurie. Not that there was anything uniquely special about it, it just seemed to be, it had a workbook, number one, and it seemed to be basic enough and didn't get too much into weeds that we could use it to guide our discussions. But it just so happened that about six weeks before this study started, the Dallas Theological Seminary offered a free online class on the book of Revelation. And so I signed up and took that class. And I was able to hear a professor from a seminary talk and go through the book. And it really helped me to be prepared to lead this small group study. The thing about teaching and preaching and preparing is it makes you dig down a little bit deeper into God's Word. And so I had to dig a little deeper than what I had asked maybe the folks who were coming to to dig because I wanted to be prepared to lead the discussions. 
And I found out that as we got into the book that what we did, we used the, the Greg Laurie book and the study guide as a, as a guide, but we started to really look at the scriptures, which is what we should have done, and what they said. And quite frankly, we had some pretty interesting discussions about the book of Revelation. One thing that the Dallas Theological professor said was this, which is very true. And it's true of a lot of the Bible. Although I think the Bible, for the most part, says what it means, and it means what it says. But what he said is the book of Revelation is one book that you really can't get too dogmatic on. And I agree. Dogmatic meaning you can't stand on certain things and say, I know I'm right on this, and you are wrong. Because there's so much in there. There's so much imagery. There's so much uh, prophecy in there. It's really hard to figure out what the writer may, John may have been talking about. And as a matter of fact, I read behind many different commentators. I read behind Greg Laurie. I read behind Finest Dake. Pastor talks about Finest Dake. And he, he'll take you in all sorts of places. And I read some other commentary, and the, and the professor gave commentary. And so there were so many opposing views at times on some of the things in the book of Revelation that I realized I certain could, certainly shouldn't be dogmatic on certain things. But one thing he said as we started into this, and the professor said this, which I agree with, and if you decide after this to go read the book of Revelation, keep this in mind as you read it. Take the book literally as much as you can. When you read it, if it says something, take it literally. It makes it much easier to read. There will be some things that if you take literally will might be a bit confusing, but take it literally for as much as you can. The book of Revelation was written by one of Jesus' disciples, John. He was out on an island called Patmos. He had been exiled out there. Church tradition, as we know, the early church was under heavy Roman persecution. All of the early disciples were martyred for their faith. Early church tradition said they tried to boil John in a vat of oil. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they tried to kill him. And they kept him, so they put him out on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos was probably a penal island. He wasn't likely out there by himself. They didn't have prisons and things like we have today. They either stoned you, crucified you, and if that didn't work, then they put you out on an island. And that's where John was. John was out on an island. He likely was not by himself. But it was on this island that an angel of the Lord, prompted through Christ Jesus himself, appeared to John. And he told John some things. And the book of Revelation, one thing about it is one is probably the only book, I think the only book, where it's, it has its own outline. And if you look at Revelation 119, and it'll be up on the screen... This is what the angel of the Lord told John to write. He said, write these things, John, which you have seen. Write these things which are and the things which will take place after this. Three things he told him to write. These things seen. Most, most of the commentators, I tend to agree, believe that was referring to the image of Christ. John saw a little image of Jesus Christ out on that island and he was in full white. The Bible says his hair was white like wool and his eyes were like flame of fire. He had brass feet. He held seven stars and something like a sword of the word come out of his mouth. That was the things seen. And he said, John, write those things which are. And we believe that was referring to the seven churches. Chapter 1 of the book of Revelation is about what John saw, a risen Christ, that image of him. Chapters 2 and 3 are about seven churches in Asia. He said, I want you to write something to those churches, John. I got something to say to them. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. And then in chapters 4 through 22, which make up the, book of, the bulk of Revelation, 
He said, write those things that will be. That's referring to the future events. Those are the things that if you were to go out and ask anyone about the book of Revelation and say, what does the book of Revelation mean? Most people would tell you things like judgment, wrath, and all those things. But that's not what my text comes from. It wasn't until I got to the end of this study. And I don't know if those who were here with me when we did it will remember this. But I got to the end of this study. And I, re- and I read this in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. John said this, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And as I read that, I also thought about Revelation 1-4. Can you pull that up for me, Mark? Is that, is that right? Is that the right one, Mark? Okay, take it down. That's good. I, I, have that, I have that wrong. Earlier in the book of Revelation, John had, said, John had also said, whoever hears and reads and keeps the words of this prophecy. So he starts out talking about hearing and reading and keeping the words of this prophecy. He ends up saying, who doesn't keep them will have part of the plagues. But what intrigued me was, what words? What words could he possibly be talking about? I literally said that to myself. And, I, and then in my study, in my quiet time, I said, God, what words? I mean, if you think about the book of Revelation, if you think about the, book, the bulk of it, I'm thinking, God, is it about the judgments? Is that what the words are? Is it those, the Bible says there's three uh, groups of judgments that are poured out. The first one being the seal judgments. And most people who even, once again, who really don't know God's word, they'll know the first four of the seal judgments. Do you know why? Because they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Most people know about that. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. The white horse, the black horse, the red horse, the pale horse, who pours out judgment, death, war, famine. God, is that what the words were? Was it the trumpet judgments? We, we learned that the seventh, trump, the seventh judgment always opens the next level. So the seventh seal judgment introduces the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet introduced the seven bowl judgments. Things get progressively worse. This is known as the tribulation period. Seven years. First three and a half known as the tribulation. The last three and a half known as the great tribulation. John, are those the words? Is that what you were talking about when you said whoever doesn't keep these words, these judgments? Well, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the all-elusive rapture. We talked about the rapture as well. Is that what the word was? And you want to talk about someone where someone people will get dogmatic. They will get dogmatic on the rapture. We are a pre-tribulation rapture church. We believe that Christ is going to remove the church before the tribulation period that we just talked about. We believe that. And there's scripture to support that. One of the ones that we talked about that I think is one of the strongest is the church is mentioned so much in the first three chapters. Then it's not mentioned again till the very end. And so at chapter four after the churches, the next thing that happens in chapter five is rejoicing in heaven. I can't think of a time when there'll be more rejoicing in heaven than when all the saints are out of here up there into the presence of the Lord. I think that's a pretty strong. But you know, I listen to a lot of commentators and they make a lot of arguments for, for uh, mid-tribulation, thinking that the rapture will occur in the middle. 
And some make for post-tribulation that think it'll be at the end. And you know what? I'm not going to argue over that. The Bible says watch and pray. I want to share a story with you. I was talking to Colin recently, my son. Most of you know he's over at NC State. He's part of the campus ministry there. Whether you know or not, I think he, well, he's going for his spring break to Africa, and then he's, the plan as of right now is the girl he's dating, they will get engaged when he graduates, and they will go back to Africa for a year as a missionary. And, and then they're going to come back and marry. That's the plan right now, folks. Plans change, I can tell you. I, I, I've been all over the place. I, I've, I've known just a, hey, whatever, okay? Uh, and so um, what they're doing, which is wise as a young couple, they've been meeting with other missionaries. And they've been talking with a missionary recently that came through NC State's campus ministry. They got married, and for the last several years, they've been missionaries to Jordan. They're leaving to go be missionaries to Iraq. And that's my thing. Mm, that's what we, we think about. Mm. But I thank God for young people, part of an organization called Live Dead. Don't live for yourselves. Live for Christ. But they went, and they've been talking to these missionaries. They've been talking to these missionaries who've been living in Jordan. And what he said to Colin, I don't know what prompted the conversation, but I found it very interesting. He said this, this is the missionary couple. If you get a group of Christians, American Christians, together, and we're discussing maybe theology and things, we'll start inevitably talking about the rapture, is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. We'll talk about things like once saved, always saved, do the gifts for today, all those things that we debate. And there's nothing wrong with debating those things. What I found interesting, he said that this, this missionary to a Middle Eastern country where it's heavily Muslim, where their lives are literally on the line, they, they don't talk about that. I said, well, what do they talk about, Colin? They talk about Jesus Christ. They talk about the importance of sharing him. They talk about the importance of staying close to him because their lives are on the line. That's what they talk about. And, and I, I found that intriguing. But we get together sometime and we just start pounding the finer importance of doctrine. Is that what the word was, John? Was it the rapture? Maybe it's the Antichrist. Maybe that's what the word was. We, just, we talked about the Antichrist in our study. Who is he? Where is he going to come from? Is he born yet? I don't know. How about the mark of the beast? That's another one that people who even aren't, don't know anything about the Bible, don't know anything about the Lord, you ask them what the mark of the beast is and what will they tell you? 666. The all-elusive, 666. They know what that number is. As a matter of fact, I've been, I've been places before, maybe you've done it, maybe you've seen it, where people go into a store and they buy something. And it comes up on the register, $6.66. And what do they do? Let me buy a pack of gum or something. I can't have that number up here right now. I've I got to get some. I've seen it. They know nothing about God's Word. You want me to tell you what 666 means? And what the professors said, and what most, nearly all commentators said, let me tell you what it means. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. But I, is that the word, John? Is it the martyred saints that are martyred during the tribulation? Is it the living creatures that worship God around the throne? Is it the judgment seat of Christ? We had some conversation about that as well. Every one of us as Christians. We die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this to judgment. And we stand in front of the Lord, and He judges our works and our deeds for our motives. And I don't know what that's going to be like. I have a tendency to want to think, you know, I'm standing before the Lord. I'm, I'm his, his child. What's that going to be like? I hope it's going to be kind of 
festive and awards. And then, of course, of course Chris Farah, he's laughing out there. He's like, Larry, that's not how it's going to be. It's called the judgment seat. It's not called the award seat. And maybe he's right. Was that the word? How about the great white throne judgment? Every person who has ever rejected the free message of the gospel will stand before God's great white throne to be cast into the second death, the lake of fire. That's going to happen. Is that what it was? Maybe it was the millennial reign. Maybe it was the thousand years when Christ returns and rules the earth and everything's restored back like it was supposed to be. Maybe that was the word. But it really wasn't. It wasn't until I had read and studied the book of Revelation. It wasn't about judgment. It wasn't, that's not what I, I got out of this deep study about God, His wrath. I think as believers and as Christians and we see what's going on, we see our brothers and sisters martyred in the Middle East. We see us mocked here on the United States. And in our flesh, sometimes I think we want to say, yeah, revelation, that's what's going to happen. You're finally going to get yours. That's our thinking. Let me tell you what I think the words of revelation could be. There's a theme that runs through that book from the very beginning. One in particular, and it runs through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that word was repent. And overcome was the second word. Used over and over and over throughout the book of Revelation. When God's wrath is being poured out, repent, repent, repent. I was amazed at how many times he gave for people to repent. I told you that the chapters 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation was about the seven churches of Asia. And he wrote a letter to those churches. And we talked about, was those, were they literal churches? Were they literal churches? I think they were literal churches. Some people, some commentators think they represented church ages. That they might not have been literal churches, but a representation of a church age. For example, one of the churches that most everybody seems to know and can name is the church of Laodicea. That was the lukewarm church. That was the one where Christ said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And I'm, unfortunately, I think too many times as believers, we know that church only because we use that word about being lukewarm to beat each other up sometime. I don't think when we should necessarily. But the church of Laodicea, was it a real church or was it a church age? I think it was a real church. And the angel said, and Christ said to the angel, write a letter to these churches. I got something to say to them. And you know, we challenged each other in our group, and I'll challenge you this morning. We said this, what if God sent an angel to Pastor Don today? What if he's in his office this week and an angel visited him and said, Pastor Don, I got something to say to you. And every one of those churches, he had some commend them for some things and he rebuked them for some things, with exception of two. The church of Philadelphia and the church of Smyrna, he had no rebuke for them. And the church of Laodicea, he had nothing good to say about them. But if an angel visited Pastor Don today and said, Pastor, I got something to say. We asked, what would he, might, would he say about Bethel? What would he say good about us? What, if anything, would he rebuke us for? And if you happen to be sitting out there going, I know the answer to that question. I could answer that for you. Let's take it down and make it personal. What if he sent an angel to you? What would he commend you for? What would he rebuke you for? What would he tell you to repent about? It was in this book that I did realize how merciful God was. In Revelation 14, 6 through 7, 
This is right in the heart of the, of the last of the great tribulation. The bold judgments are being poured out. And what is God doing? It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give, him, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs. I told you to take Revelation as literally as you possibly can. So here we are, God's judgment is being completely poured out. And like I said, we would be more likely to say, see, finally, finally, you're getting what you deserve. But what does God do? A literal angel is flying through the air, bringing the gospel, the everlasting gospel, once again at the very last hour, asking people to worship God and to fear Him. What's the response? This was more amazing to me than anything. What was the response? Look at Revelation 16, 11. What did they do? They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine it today, but could you imagine that? A merciful God. Repent. We hear that word a lot. We should hear it more. The word repent means to turn. It means to turn, to turn from our sins, to go another way. But you will never repent. You'll never truly repent until you first turn to the cross. Until you first really see who you are. Until I see who I am in light of a holy God. One of my favorite parables in the Bible is the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee being self-righteous, he goes into the temple. And he says, I'm glad I'm not like this person. I'm not like that person. I do this and I do that. He's self-righteous. He thinks it's salvation. He's going to earn it on his own. But the Bible says a tax collector walks in. The lowest of our society, of their society then, won't even look up, beats his chest and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Bible said that person went away justified. That's how we have to come and see him with that type of repentant heart. The Bible says he is close to the brokenhearted and those with a contrite spirit. But I'm not so sure that's told too much today what repentance really is and what it produces. I want to give you four things that real repentance produces. Number one, look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Real repentance, what does real repentance produce? Salvation. Have you ever had a real repentant experience with the Lord? I'm not going to prompt you to do that, but the Holy Spirit of heaven will. They'll draw you, prick your heart. At any point, whether it's this service, praise and worship, or future service, you feel the Holy Spirit of heaven dealing with you, you need to respond. You need to respond. And it produces, it says it's not to be regretted. You will never regret laying the sin burden down. Never. When you come into His presence and lay that sin burden down and it's gone, you'll never regret it. But the sorrow of the world produces death. We've seen the sorrow of the world. What is the sorrow of the world? I got caught. I got caught. That's why I'm sorry. We're seeing it played out on TV all the time now with people getting caught up in things. And we all have our pasts. You know, most Christians have a past. But the thing about the God we serve, you can come... Be godly sorrow of where you've been, being godly sorrow that you've sinned before a holy God. Get serious with Him, and it's gone. 
The world might hold it against you, but he never, he will never hold it against you. But it has to be a godly sorrow. It produces salvation. Next, look at Matthew 3 and 8. This is John the Baptist speaking. John the Baptist burst onto the scene as a forerunner to Jesus, and he said this. He came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they came out to see who this John was. He's baptizing. He looks at them and he says this, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. A changed life. I believe repentance produces a changed life. Pastor talked a little bit about that last week. Pastor stood up here in this pulpit last week and he asked us to raise our hands. And I should have raised mine about maybe some things we're struggling with. But we don't want to do that. And people don't want to have a changed life. They want, they want the crown that goes with Christianity without the cross. They're, they need real repentance. And it should produce a, a changed life. Some fruit worthy of that. Look at my Acts 26.20. 20. This is Paul talking. He's talking to a king here, King Agrippa. And he's telling about what he's been doing since his, salva- since his salvation experience. And he says, but I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and through all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. Do works befitting of repentance. Jack Hayford said those works are a godly lifestyle. I'm not talking about perfection, folks. None of us are perfect. There will be times in our lives when we struggle with things. But we come to Him and we have a godly sorrow and, he, and it produces repentance in us. It causes us to change our life. It causes us maybe the way we talk, the things we used to do, the places we used to go. There's some change in our lives. And I believe sanctification is a process. He's still working on me, I can tell you that. He's still working on me on some things, on some attitudes, some thoughts, a lot. Of, and He'll be working on me till the day He calls me home. But He's my Savior. He's my Savior. Because what else does it produce? Look at uh, Acts 3 and 19. This is Peter talking. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins might be blotted out and so that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. It produces refreshing. You want a refreshed spirit? Repent. And in the presence of the Lord, to me... I've been in the presence of the Lord when I needed repentance. That's a miserable feeling. Because when the spirit of conviction starts to move over you, you just want to get out of that. But when you're in His presence, you know you belong to Him. There's refreshing in that. There's refreshing for us as believers. We put aside the sins that so easily beset us and begin to repent and let the spirit of refreshing begin to move through us. And then lastly, Luke 15.10, it produces... Joy in the presence of angels. This is Jesus t- talking. He said, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over God, of God over one sinner who repents. Wouldn't you like to see that? You're talking about a motivator? Wouldn't you love to see what happens in heaven? He'd roll those, that sky back where we could see the rejoicing in heaven when someone truly repents and turns their life over to Him. What is repentance? What is true repentance? Produce salvation, it produces fruit, it brings refreshing, and there's joy among the angels when it happens. Jesus said, Repent. He told every one of those churches except for the two, Repent. 
But he also told all seven of them to overcome. He said, you must overcome. And today I think so many times in some of the doctrine that's taught, people think that the Christian walk is just a cakewalk. It's a spiritual rose garden. Everything's going to be wonderful. But it's really not. There's going to be some difficult times in this. There's going to be times that the walk is going to feel like a crawl. It's not easy. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. Look at, look at uh, John 16, 33. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The word tribulation there, the Greek is philipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Philipsis. And what it means, I think so many times when I've read that scripture in the past, when I hear the word tribulation, I think, well, it must be something large. I must have a major sickness going on. I've lost my job. Many of the things that we, that we large event life events. But the Greek word flips this there. What it means is this. It means to be under pressure. It means to be under pressure. It, it's used also as like uh, olives or grapes in a press. They're just pressed. How many of you know that a lot of life is about pressure of life? Life has got a lot of pressure in it. If I were to talk to anyone in here, there's probably some pressure in your life. Things like worrying about your kids, things about your jobs, things about, am I doing enough what I'm supposed to be doing? Do I have the right balance? Am I, going, am I leading my kids in the right way spiritually? I'm worried about my finances. All these things that put pressure on us in life. And that's what Jesus was saying. You're going to have a lot of pressure in life. It's going to be hard sometimes. But he said, you have peace in him. I thank God for that. There's been times in my life of the pressure, but there's been some large events. I'm just thankful that I have his peace. It's sometimes in those moments that I feel his presence more than ever. More than ever, I feel his presence with me when there's that tribulation, that pressure in my life. And you can have it as well. How do we overcome? Revelation 12 and 11 says this. And they overcame him. Him being Satan. This was the saints. This was the martyred saints. How did they overcome the same way we overcome today? By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. You cannot save yourself, church. There's nothing you can do to save your, your soul. That can only be done through and by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And to come before him with a true repentant heart and recognize who you are and ask him to forgive you. The blood of the lamb is what saves us. And the word of our testimony. That's why it's so important to be part of a local body. That's why it's so important to be around other believers. Because we build each other up. I can hear your testimony. You can hear my testimony. You can hear where God's brought me through. I can hear how he's brought you through. Some of you know I've had an opportunity to travel recently with the Billy Graham Evangelical Association. And, I, and whether it's there or I meet someone that, that I believe is a brother in the Lord or a sister in the Lord, one of the things I ask them is, how did you come to have a salvation experience? I love to hear that story, particularly from people who came to the Lord later in life. I love to hear the story. But I was in Houston after the flooding, and we were having a morning devotion. And there was a guy sitting beside me, 
and he was from Riverside, California. Now, I, I, I like the California guys that I get to meet. I've met several. I've met some from Riverside. Those were police officers. I met some uh, folks from Long Beach, California. They happen to be police officers. And this Doug, who I'm going to tell you about in a moment, he wasn't, but he was from California. Because I always like to see when I get the California people together and say, there's three people here from California. Is there any Christians left in California? That's what I always like to ask them. You better get on back to California because there's not many left. And we get, a, we get a laugh out of that. But Doug was sitting beside me, and we were having a morning devotion. And someone mentioned the year 1987 in their devotion, and I don't know why. It's irrelevant. But Doug whispered, he said, I was on the back end of a seven-year meth addiction in 1987. And I was like, wow. So after the devotion, I said, Doug, tell me about that. Because here this guy, he looked great. He, Doug was probably 60. He was out working for the Lord, witnessing to people. I said, tell me how you got into a seven-year meth- methamphetamine addiction and how did you get out of a methamphetamine addiction? Because I've seen a lot of people from my years in law enforcement, particularly working in narcotics, and they just seem to have such a hold on people. As a matter of fact, do you know in the book of Revelation, also earlier during the tribulations, it says that they refuse to repent of two things, their murder and their sorcery? Our root, the root word of sorcery being pharmakia, where we get pharmacy, drugs. It's destroyed so many people's lives. Don't go there. But I said, Doug, how, how did you do it? He said, I was at a Greg Laurie. He said, I knew I needed to do something. He said, I went to a Greg Laurie crusade in Riverside, California. He said, and when he gave... The altar call. You know what? Do you know what Doug did? He went to the bathroom. That's what Doug did. He went to the bathroom. He was under that conviction. He just wanted to get away from it. He goes to the bathroom. But in the bathroom, God was just dealing with him and dealing with him and dealing with him. And so he said he went back and he went back down to the front and he got saved and he turned his life over to the Lord. And it produced those things that we talked about earlier. But here's what Doug did that a lot of people will not do today. The Bible says that, I mean, Doug said he immersed himself in a local church. he came come out of that lifestyle. He couldn't go back and hang out with his meth buddies. He couldn't go to the places that he used to go to. He immersed himself with people who would walk with him and, and, and help him, not take him back to where he had been. And that's what we have to do. There has to be a change. And it's not going to be easy sometime, particularly depending on where we've been. But God can change us. And he could work on us. In closing, Jesus told every one of those churches that, that if they would be obedient, if they would repent, if they, if they would overcome, there would be a reward for them. And those same promises are just for, as much for us today as it was for them. This is what he told them. To the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 and 7, He said, I'll let you eat from the tree of life. No more death. I'm looking forward to that. No more death. To the church of Smyrna, he says, Smyrna, if you overcome, you won't be hurt by the second death. There's going to be a second death. Those people who rejected this gospel message, when the angel was flying, who rejected it now, the Bible says that Satan is going to be thrown into a lake of fire when this is all over. And there's going to be a second death. And people who've rejected it are going to go with them. 
Now, I don't like the thoughts of that. But if you'll overcome Smyrna, you won't be hurt by the second death. Pergamos, I'm going to give you an opportunity to eat of the hidden manna. In two, this is Revelation 2.17. I'm going to give you an opportunity to eat of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Many commentators don't know what that new manna is. I don't know what the new manna is. They really don't know what the white stone is. Some did say that in that time, stones is what they used to vote with. And that stone may represent the citizenship. You've got to be a citizen to vote. And we get to be citizens of heaven, finally. We get to get there if we'll overcome. Thyatira, I'll give you power over the nations, Revelation 2.26. And you'll receive the morning star. During the millennial reign, we get to rule the nations. I don't know what that means or what that looks like. But we get to, we get to rule the nations and receive a morning star. Christ is often referred to as the morning star. To Sardis, clothed in white garments, I will not block your name out of the book of life, and I'll confess you before the Father. Revelations 3, 5. Philadelphia, Revelation 3, 12. You'll be a pillar in the temple of God. I'll write on you the name of God and the city of God. And lastly, Revelation 3, 21. Laodicea. Laodicea was a church he had nothing good to say about. Laodicea was a church he said that was lukewarm and he spit them out of his mouth. But also, Laodicea was also the church that he said, and he says it today to our heart, that I stand at the door and knock. And he told Laodicea, if you'll open that door and let me in, I'll come in and I'll sup with you and you can sup with me. It wasn't too late for Laodicea, they had to repent. And then overcome. And if they did, he said, you will sit with Christ on his throne. It was in this time, it was in the study of Revelation that I realized it's not so much about God's judgment. It's about his mercy. It's about his long suffering. And if you sit here this morning and you've never accepted that, you've never come into really a right relationship with him. You don't know what it means to really repent before the Lord. Now is the day. Today's the day of salvation. I'm going to ask the praise team if they will to come forward. I'm not going to wait long, but if you're here this morning, the Spirit of God is convicting you. You know there's some things you need to get right. We've all been there. You're, you're not looking at anyone. I, I, I'm afraid that sometimes still we look at, we will come into a church like this and we look at the outward. We look at how we're dressed. Some have a tie, some don't. Our different social statures, where you've been, some have been divorced, some had struggles. The, we look at the backgrounds of people. But I will tell you, we're all in need of repentance. Every person must godly repent before a holy God. And it brings salvation. It brings you into the family of God. But it must produce some fruit. It must produce some fruit. You will not, if you've had a true salvation experience with the Lord, you will set on a path to be obedient to Him, to live according to His Word. I'm not going to tell you that's going to be easy. It's not. At times it's going to be incredibly difficult. But it'll be the greatest thing you've ever done. So if you're here this morning, I'm going to ask every person if they'll bow their head and close their eyes. And you felt God dealing with you about this. You know, there's, I'm not where I need to be. 
He wants you to come and repent and receive salvation. So the altar's open. Lastly, he said, you overcome. If you're here and your life is under immense pressure, maybe you're dealing with something, devil's in your ear about it. Because that's the thing, folks. Once we come into relationship with the Lord, the spiritual battle is on. It's on. And he'll get in your ear. He puts you under pressure. Life puts you under pressure. You need some refreshing you got something you need to let go of. You need some refreshing. This altar is open. It's open. I'm going to ask all of you to stand. If you didn't come forward... But you know God was dealing with you. And sometimes we let our pride get in the way. I've done it. I've let my pride get in the way before. So I'm not critical of you. But don't leave this sanctuary today. The gospel demands a response. It demands a response. And if you're here this morning and you know that, that God is dealing with you, the Holy Spirit of heaven is dealing with your heart. You can see me. You can see Pastor. You can see Brother Matt, Brother Denny, Sister Teresa, Sister Christy, Brother Michael. I don't know. I don't care who you see. But you need to see someone and say, God was dealing with me. And I didn't come forward. I let my pride get in the way. But God will, God, somebody can lead you to the Lord right there. And talk you through what it's about. But it demands a response. One of these days, I'm going to stand before him. And I'm going to give an account for what I did with the, with, with the gospel. Thank God I've accepted him as my Savior. Thank God. Have you? I hope so. If you're here this morning, life's been hard on you, you want to come down into his presence a little bit, he's here to meet you here. And what I'm going to do now, I'm going to ask Brother Matt and the team, if they'll sing this song, I'm going to ask all of you to come down. Let's just worship a minute. And then I'll turn, then I'll turn the service over to Pastor Don.